jump into 1 Corinthians. I, I want to I talk a little bit about the approach that we have to Scripture before we jump into the text today. There's a verse in Tim, second, two verses in 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, which reads this, and we'll put it up here. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, the Word of God is kind of like a coach in some ways. When you have a coach, some of you know that, that uh, when you do things right, they're encouraged. And you go, wow, this is awesome. You guys did great. But, but if there are things that need correction as part of the training process, he's going to kick the team in the butt. And he say, you missed tackles. Uh, you missed some blocking assignments or some things that you missed. And, and we can do better. And so there's this encouragement side and there's this training side. So it's, it's the encouragement and the kick in the pants. And so now... The Word of God does that too, okay? Just so you know, it's called the law and the gospel. The, the gospel is this is good news. This is what God has done for you. Uh, the law is this is where you fall short and you need a little bit of encouragement. And so every passage that we preach on will probably have a little bit of law and a little bit of gospel in a balance. And as we go through 1 Corinthians, and if you're visiting with us for the first time or your guest, um, this, is, this is something that was written to a church in, the, in Corinth. And some of it is, is more difficult to deal with because it's a, some of it's more law or uh, an encouragement or a kick in the pants and saying, we got to do something with this. So we're going to hit some of those things because we as a team, as a church, want to be more like Jesus. And that's the whole purpose. And so, so that's why we are looking at 1 Corinthians. And so some of these passages are going to be a little more challenging than others. And today is one of those that may be a little bit challenging. So that's my first sermon. So we'll, that one's free. So we'll go from here. Okay, 12 weeks ago, we began a series on 1 Corinthians. And there's one reoccurring theme is how do we live a moral life in an immoral world? We live in a culture that tolerates evil, that promotes perversion, it actually celebrates sin. Watching immorality is considered entertainment. People are trying to drive Christianity from the public square. Accepting sexual perversion is called affirmation. Standing up for truth and righteousness or family values is considered hate. And sometimes you'll see a bumper sticker that says, hate is not a family value. Speaking biblical truth now is considered by some as hate speech. And we, we are really in danger here in America at times. How are we to be God's people, a community of believers, practicing and promoting love and practicing and promoting morality when we're surrounded by so much sin, immorality, and unrighteousness? The church in Corinth faced that very same challenge. Can you bring me down just a bit, Todd, just, just a, a tad? Eau Claire Wesleyan Church faces that challenge as well. And with this dilemma comes a new problem. It's a new problem. What happens when this immorality infiltrates the church, the body of Christ? What do we do then? Are we not to be the community of love and forgiveness? Can we affirm and accept people in the church who are practicing sin as a matter of lifestyle? What happens when immorality infiltrates the church of Jesus Christ and we begin to lose our distinctive difference from the immoral culture around us? Light gets fuzzy and flickers. White turns to gray. 
morality turns into situational ethics and the lines of right and wrong begin to bend and good and bad begin to blend. Does that all sound familiar? We live in that world. The church at Corinth had that challenge and E.C. Westland also has that challenge. What do we do when immorality comes into the church and stays? What do we do? Sin in the church is contagious. It's contagious. Several years ago, there's a movie came out entitled Outbreak. How many of you saw Outbreak? Okay. Both of you, literally. Okay. Outbreak. <laughs> maybe, maybe it wasn't as popular as I thought it was. Anyway, Outbreak is a story of, of, of someone coming over from Africa into America uh, carrying the Ebola virus. And the virus began to spread, and the danger was that it would cause an epidemic or pandemic with disease and death. And it was this highly contagious disease that had to be contained so it didn't destroy huge numbers of people. Well, we face the same danger, not with Ebola, but with something called sin. Sin. Today, we're going to look at outbreak. Outbreak. What do we do when we have an outbreak of immorality in the local church? It is highly contagious. Immorality left alone will affect and infect the entire church, bringing destruction and eventual death of the church. So I want us to see what God tells us to do about it as we look at 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5 is on page 925, I think, or 926 in the Bible in the rack in front of you. 1 Corinthians 5, we're going to look at the, uh, the, the whole chapter, so I want to read it to us, and please read along as we go. Verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And I've already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that sinful, his sinful nature may be destroyed, and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been crucified. Therefore, let us keep the sacrifice, keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, slanderer, drunkard, or swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Paul begins this passage, very challenging passage, by stating the problem. There's a problem. And this problem had three parts, three parts to this problem. Number one was the sin, the sin. The sin was described as sexual immorality in the church. And the, the Greek word for immorality is porneia, from which we get the word pornography. 
It literally means prostitution. But in the New Testament, it has a broader meaning to include all sexual impurity of various kinds, any sexual evil. Uh, could be fornication, which is sex before marriage, adultery, sex outside of marriage, extramarital sexual sins, includes homosexuality, incest, all of those sex sins. And this sin or immorality in the, in the Corinthian church was common knowledge. Everybody knew. Everybody knew. It was universally reported. Everybody knew about it. It was a, a man who was living in an incestuous relationship. It says, a man has his father's wife. Gordon Fee writes, the verb to have, it's important we understand this, when used in a sexual or marital context, is a euphemism for an enduring sexual relationship, not just a passing fancy or a one-night stand. So Paul means he's living with her sexually, living together and sleeping together. Evidently the man, but not the woman, was part of the Christian community. We're not sure the details aren't given, but whatever the exact nature of the relationship, he says, even the immoral pagans, the Romans and Greeks and Gentiles, did not allow such a sin. This was, this was a huge deal, huge deal. Now, in this culture, as we studied, we started at 1 Corinthians, they had temple prostitutes as part of their religion, okay? As part of their religion. But they, even they would not condone this. This is a culture that said, mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children. They were very immoral in their culture. But they were shocked at this sin, serious sin. Now, if we draw a parallel today, it's quite common for couples to live together without being married or living in or practicing homosexuality, and it's sinful, but our culture accepts it. Our culture accepts this, and many churches just turn a blind eye. They turn a blind eye. If it's taken further, our society may deal with it, but not that. Now, let me just say this. God created sex, and sex is good. One of his first commands was, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. Procreate, and just, just let me throw this out. Procreation is not an option, it's a command. It's not an option, it's a command. Sex is not primarily for pleasure, it's primarily for procreation. Okay? Now God made it pleasurable so he didn't stop at one kid, but that's, that's a whole other topic at this point. Procreation is a command. But sex and procreation are to be practiced in the context of the relationship that God established. God established it. Marriage, one man, one woman. That's it. Outside of that relationship, sex is bad, it's evil, it's perverted. And our culture today, as, as we see, we're just totally, totally uh, obsessed with, with pleasure of sexual things. And it, it treats sex is no more than a physical appetite to be gratified. Casual acceptance of sexual relationships of all types. Gen X and millennial cultures and generations are part of the hookup culture. The hookup culture, just, they, they used to date, now they just meet, hook up, and, and go. That was the sin. But the biggest part of the problem was, in the first Corinthian church, was the church's attitude towards the sin. Church's attitude. Is letter B, the attitude of the church, verse 2. Verse 2 says, And you are proud. Shouldn't you have rather been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Pride? 
That seems really, really odd, pride. Because the dividing line between the world and the church had become so blurred, they didn't know how to deal with sin, or they didn't want to deal with sin. But pride and, and arrogance is probably spiritual pride. Spiritual pride because they had a lot of biblical knowledge, they had a lot of spiritual gifts. They were doing well, they were comfortable in their faith, and it looked like their church was doing just great. Thank you. And so they approached it with pride. Complacency, complacency in our faith journey is a result of pride. I've arrived, I'm where I should be, I'm doing great. And the complacent church proud of themselves, an indifferent church tolerating blatant sin in their fellowship. Proud in their rational thought, humanistic thinking. Or perhaps pride about their openness. Pride about their openness. Our, our church is broad-minded. We're an open community of faith. We're an affirming church. We're a community of grace and not law. I hear that all the time. Several years ago, I was in a minister's meeting in, in Seattle, and a minister was asked if his church allowed practicing homosexuals to become members of the church. His reply, he says, we are an open and inclusive community. He says, we believe it's better for them to be included in the community of faith in order to come under God's influence than to be excluded. See, inclusion, that, that's a buzzword. What, what kind of a church was that? And I'll name it because it's important that we understand the battle that's going on. It was a Presbyterian church, USA. Five years later, that denomination ordained their first openly practicing homosexual pastor. And there has been a battle and a split between and in and out that denomination. I have friends who are pastors in that church, that denomination. They are battling for the, for the life and morality of that whole denomination. Split the church right down the center. Inclusion. There are churches, even in our community, that boast about their liberal stands and moral issues, whether it's homosexuality or gay, gay marriage or gender confusion, whatever it might be. And in their attempts to love sinners, they've crossed the line into accepting sin. Inclusion at the expense of holiness. Now, what did Jesus do with all of this? You know, Jesus reached out to all people, and I hear this all the time. He did. He loved all of us sinners. He loved all of us. None of us are without sin. He loved us without compromising righteousness. And then he set high standards. He forgave sin. There's not a sin Jesus didn't forgive. There's not a sin he won't forgive. And many of us can say, praise God for that. Because we, we may have trouble forgiving our own selves with sin. But Jesus forgave all sins. But then he turned around and said, you're forgiven. Go and sin no more. He didn't just say, oh, forgive you. Just go, go do what you want. He said, go and sin no more. He required repentance, and he knew the hearts, so he knew who was repentant. Well, pride and arrogance keeps this church from seeing the real problem, these Corinthians. But, you know, we want to love and accept everybody. You know that? We hear the word tolerance. Well, love does not equal tolerance. Tolerance does not equal love. Tolerance actually is the exact opposite of love because tolerance says, I don't, you can do whatever you want, I don't really care. That's not, that's not love, that's, that, that's tolerance. Tolerance says, I don't care what you do. And again, we can speak truth without love and 
There are some, there's a lot of that going on, people condemning. We speak truth and there's no love, we're just condemning. But we cannot love without speaking truth. We cannot love without speaking truth. Paul says, shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief? The attitude of the church there was pride. And then he says, there's no grief. Our hearts, our hearts must be broken by the things that break God's heart. Our hearts must be broken by the things that break God's heart. Grieving because sin is so offensive to God and it's so destructive to the people practicing sin. I've seen signs outside churches that read, accepting and affirming community. It sounds loving, sounds spiritual, sounds Christ-like. Most, in most instances, back in Seattle, those were code words for, we accept practicing homosexuals. Come here, we will affirm you. We will accept your behavior. Now, before we jump on the anti-homosexual bandwagon, I want to do some historical background here. The trend began long ago when the church in America began to water down its stand on immorality, primarily related to divorce and remarriage. Using human reasoning rather than the biblical mandate, we just gave carte blanche acceptance to divorce for any reason. It's called no-fault divorce. There are reasons for, legitimate biblical reasons for divorce, adultery and desertion where it, it fits into the biblical paradigm. That happens. Many here have been victims of those kinds of circumstances. But the general attitude went, oh, just do whatever. You know, we're not going to condemn you. We're going to love you. So just, and we gave a carte blanche acceptance of, of divorce for any reason called no-fault divorce. That's another sermon. We can't do that today. And people went on their merry way, leaving families in destruction. The family, of course, is the smallest unit of the temple of God. And we talked about that. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you, y'all, are that temple. And the church stayed silent. Rather than grief, there is spiritual pride. We must, we must mourn over sin. We must mourn. The grief of God over sin, because it's so incredibly destructive to, to human beings. We get so conditioned that we're no longer shocked. There's the normalization of sin, incrementalism. And there's a battle going on right now all over this country, and I know of one, one particular church that gave into this in Seattle area. And they, they were interviewing, there's a, a recorded interview of a young woman that's now part of this church describing her experience. She said she came to the realization one day that she had same-sex attraction. She said, I, I have same-sex attraction. And she decided that's who she was. And the church interviewer gushed about how wonderful it was that she finally realized who she was and could finally express it. A welcoming, affirming church. Let me tell you something. Feelings... And emotions do not dictate right and wrong. Feelings and emotions don't dictate what's right and wrong. It doesn't matter what we feel. It's what does God say? What does the Word of God say? What's truth? That was same-sex attraction. Well, Matt Lauer had opposite-sex attractions. Does that mean he was right to sexually harass and sexually assault women? Because, well, I just have opposite-sex attractions. 
Same thing. Based on my feelings, I'm going to do what I think is right and justified. The basis of right and wrong cannot be feelings, emotions, or opinion. The basis of right and wrong must be fact and truth. Primarily biblical truth. Biblical truth. The truth of God's word says sex is good. But it is to be expressed in one context only, with the opposite sex, within marriage, one man, one woman for life. We, we have so many ways we can deceive ourselves. That's why Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We talked about parameters for relationship as we went through God's top 10. God established parameters for all relationships. God establishes it. If you go with your feelings, you can say, well, is it okay for a man to have an opposite sex attraction for your wife and act it out? Of course not. That's based on feelings, following our feelings. No, the Bible says it's wrong. Most culture will say that's wrong. Does my emotion make it right? No way. And we've lost our capacity to be shocked. Shock moves us to mourning and sorrow and repentance. Mourning at the view of sin and degradation of his creation, his church, his body. That was the sin. That was the attitude of the church. The third part of the problem was the infection. The infection. Verses 6 through 8 talks about this infection. Says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, keep the festival, not with the old yeast and yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. This is the epidemic or the pandemic. Why is it so important to deal with immorality in the church? Because it spreads. It spreads. It infects. Kenneth Chafin says, if this is not handled promptly and incisively, it will eventually permeate the whole church. And he takes us beyond the immorality part. He says, if we do not raise our voices against violence in every form, we will become violent people. If the church gives no commitment to efforts at peace, we become a warring people. If the church will not speak out against the idolatry of materialism, it will become materialistic. Whatever evil we allow to exist unchallenged in our midst will grow like a malignancy within the fellowship of the church. This addresses in principle more than just sexual immorality, all immoral behavior, gossip, greed, rebellion, divisiveness, materialism. See, we do not... We do not sin in isolation because we're all connected. Sin infects. Sin is contagious. It's contagious. He gives a yeast illustration. This is kind of different for us. I, I don't do much baking and I don't understand all this yeast stuff. But basically, in the, in the New Testament, yeast was a symbol of the process by which evil spread through a community until the whole community was affected. Our proverb is, um, one bad apple spoils a whole barrel. Okay. Or one, one virus will infect your whole hard drive and destroy your computer. Okay, those kinds of things. One little thing, it's just this little thing, but it, you know, it destroys that. He's talking about yeast that begins small and infects the entire group, entire church. A little sin, if not removed, will infect the whole body, the whole church. 
Then he says Christ has been sacrificed or Christ has been crucified. And in the Old Testament, the slaying of the Passover lamb led the Jews to be unleavened without yeast or pure without sin. In other words, the lamb paid for their sins. We're going to celebrate communion in a little bit. We celebrate that sacrifice because it delivered us from sins. And that basically was the instrument to bring purification from their sins. Jesus' death is what delivered us from the yeast of unrighteousness and, and evil. Becoming forgiven. And in the same way as we celebrate, God's people are to keep an ongoing feast of the celebration of God's cleansing power, moving us into holiness and in living. It's an ongoing purification process, cleaning out our lives personally and corporately. It's a process that never, never ends. Never ends. And of course, purity, lest we get proud on the other side, pure is not, it's not something we earn. It's not something we attain. It's a gift of grace that God gives us. There's no room for pride, no room for arrogance, no room for self-righteousness, no room for pointing fingers at other people. So the problem is the sin, the attitude, and the affection. So what is the solution? The solution comes in eight parts. We're going to look at these pretty quickly. The solution. Number one, recognize the sin. Recognize the sin. This has to start with you and me. It needs to begin with us looking inside ourselves. Not looking out, look, looking inward first. Is there any sin in my life? Psalm 139, 23 and 24, a prayer I pray just about every day. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Asking God to search us. Search me. It starts, starts in my heart. Recognize the sin in the church. It's, it's first my sin, and then it's the corporate sin. All of our sins can begin to infect the body. Number two, check our attitude. Check our attitude. Am I proud? Am I arrogant? Am I full of spiritual pride? Am I complacent? Am I judgmental and say, I'm not as bad as those guys, okay? That I'm not as bad as they are. Um, you know, that's, what is my attitude towards my sin? Or am I mourning? Am I repentant and humble? One of the most incredible things that we find are the prophets in the Old Testament even though they were living righteously, they mourned and repented for the sins of the nation, for the sins of their leaders in the nation. Are we mourning and repenting for the sins of leaders, sins of our nation? We do that. That's our attitude. Number three, confront the sin. Now, don't confront the sin until you've examined your own life. That's what I say. Examine your heart first. Do not confront sin until you know your attitude is right. And if you are genuinely sorrowful, mourning, and repentant on behalf of that person's sin, then confront. This is the most uncomfortable part of most people's lives. Some people like to confront. Some people do anything to avoid confronting. But sometimes God calls on each and every one of us to deal with sin or confront. James 5, 19 to 20 says this. These are promises. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So if you see somebody wandering, confront it. Galatians 6, 1 says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. Key word, gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. 
See, confronting with the caution of, I'm not better than anybody else, I'm not above that. We look at people that do certain sins and I say, but for the grace of God, that could be me. In humility before God. And then Matthew 18, 15 to 17, Jesus gave these guidelines. Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. Go one-on-one. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or tax collector. See, this sequence in 1 Corinthians 5 is what Jesus laid out in Matthew 18. Go personally, alone, take two, one or two others, then you may have to share it with the church and then put them out of the church if they refuse to listen because Jesus understood the infection factor. Confront sin. Number four, be redemptive, be redemptive. The purpose of confronting sin, yes, is to keep infection from spreading, but the most important part is to restore the person to relationship. There's a very interesting verse here, and I, there, we'll take a little more time on this because people have questions about this. Verse 5 says, Hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed, and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Verse 5. It's kind of a, what is he talking about? What is he talking about? Basically, Paul wants to deliver this immoral man back out of the church, out of the community of light, truth, and love into the domain of Satan, back out to the world. And the, the context strongly suggests this isn't just Paul's responsibility, but it's the responsibility of the entire church. The whole church is to carry out this action. It says don't even eat with them. The, the hope is that total spiritual and social isolation will bring them back and they'll realize that they need this fellowship. It's a crazy thing to think about that. When he, Manfred Brauch in Hard Sayings of Paul says, flesh represents a total being, including the human spirit, in its opposition to God. Spirit designates a total being, including the physical, as redeemed by God in relation to Jesus. So the aim of the excommunication would then have been the destruction of the offender's way of life. Not him, but his way of life. In order that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Remember the prodigal son, he went out, man, he experienced destruction. What happened? He came back. The, the purpose is redemptive, to bring people back. The intent of this action, Gordon Fee says, therefore is the man's salvation. Salvation. Kenneth Chaffin, Chaffin writes this, he said, Paul did not view the action as punishment, but as having a redemptive purpose, both for the man and the church. As painful as the experience would be, Paul felt that it might bring the man to his senses, cause him to see what he was doing and repent. As long as our friends in the Christian community, very important, as long as our friends in the Christian community help us rationalize our sins, we are not likely to do anything to change. But when in love we are confronted with what we are doing and forced to look at ourselves through different eyes, we more likely begin to examine our lives. So our motive for confronting sin is to be Redemptive, Re redemptive. Bring the person back to Jesus Christ, back into the community. Number five, we are not to judge unbelievers. We are not to judge unbelievers. 
I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or doubt. In that case, you would have to leave the world. But now I am writing that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, etc. We're not to judge outsiders, okay? You know, we're not to condemn outsiders. We're not supposed to remove ourselves from relationships with outsiders. Some people believe to be a Christian, you've got to stay in four walls and stay with just believe. No, we are to be salt and light. We are to be out there amongst all kinds of humanity. And we're not to judge them. God is our judge. Time will come when that happens. We're to relate to, we're to live among, and we're to love unbelievers. But number six, we are to judge believers. This is a stumbling point for some people. We are to judge believers. If someone claims to be a follower of Jesus yet lives in immorality, we are called to judge. We are called to judge. Now, people will quote Matthew 7, 1 to 2. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Basically, that's saying that, that we aren't supposed to judge ex except with realizing that we're going to be judged with the same standard. We will be held to the same standard as those that we judge. He says, are you not to judge those inside? Inside, we are responsible for life inside the church. We are responsible for life inside the church. He says, are you not to judge those inside? It's a rhetorical question of the answer expected yes. That's a, a Greek construction. Are you not to judge those inside? Yes, we are. Number seven, remove sin. Remove sin. As a community, they're called to excommunicate this man from the church. This outbreak, this infection, they have to remove the carrier. And then even stronger, the eighth guideline says we are not to associate with people who profess to be Christians but live immoral lifestyles. We are not to associate with people who profess to be Christians but live immoral lifestyles. Verse 11 I'm writing that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but a sexually immoral or greedy and adulterer, slander, drunkard, or swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. Doesn't mean we shun them. You know, you look at some of those, um, those uh, religious groups that shun people. Uh, if we see them at the grocery or mall, grocery store or mall, or whatever, but not to associate with fellowship or have any social context. Now, this obviously has to do with contaminating sins, sins that are obvious to the whole church that they affect everyone. We all sin, okay? We all sin. You know, this is the balance between the law and the gospel. We all sin. So this doesn't have to do with those. These are contaminating sins that are obvious enough they're affecting the entire church. Well known. Now Kenneth Chafin gives us three, three questions. Number one, does the action calling for discipline threaten the life and existence of the church itself? Does this sin that's happening openly in rebellion against God, is it affecting the, the church in a, such a negative way that it could threaten the existence of the church? Number two, is there a danger that the sinful act will infect the whole church? In other words, it's going to cause this infection that happens. And will allowing this spe specific activity to go on lessen the distinction between the church and the world? Where people say there's no difference between you and me. There has to be a difference. The biggest challenge in most Christian communities in America is that when someone's disciplined in some way, 
They just leave and they go to the church down the street. It says volumes about the fragmented nature of the Christian community and about those who quickly welcome someone who is under discipline at another church. Just say, oh, come in. Bring your tithes. We need to ask more questions and be more wise. We do not want to send. We do not want to receive infections from one body to another. God calls us all to examine our lives, be accountable, examined by others, to keep our hearts and house clean. Because everything we do affects the body. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give us the hard stuff to say and that you teach us and you don't mince words. And Paul dealt with some sticky issues and we may or may not be dealing with these exact issues, but the principles are the same. And I just pray, Lord, today that you would continue your process of purification in our lives. And that as we celebrate communion together today, that, that, that act that Jesus had, that he died for us so that he could pay not only for the, the, the consequences of sin, but for the power of sin to set us free so we could be holy and pure. And God, that we would seek to draw closer to you, that we would embrace your forgiveness. And God, that we would know again that you love us unconditionally. And we praise you for that in Jesus' name.